0: Welcome to episode 34 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the Culture Editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalfe, and I'm the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse.
0: Now, we've got a fantastic lineup today, but before we start, the really good news for Charlotte and me is that we have a new sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin. You can tell why we're pleased about that. The late <laughs> Martin Miller, who created this eponymous and delicious, I have tried it, delicious gin, was a visionary, an iconoclast, and an entrepreneur who set out to reinvent gin in 1999, well ahead of the curve, I think. He blended only the finest botanicals, and then using a unique jewel distillate process with water, all the way from Iceland, he made this amazing gin. When Martin Miller first told friends he was going to make his own gin, their response was, you're mad, let's do it. And to this day, the Martin Miller brand is From Madness
1: to Genius. Well, it is quite genius because the result is a spirit that's widely recognised as the world's leading superior premium gin, which has won more awards than any other gin over the last 15 years and triggered an entire gin renaissance. The Martin Miller original is absolutely delicious, and were it not so early in the morning, I can guarantee that Ed and I would be enjoying a tipple right now. And I actually met the late Martin Miller when he had his gloriously bonkers and bohemian Miller's Residence on Westbourne Grove, and where I remember all the drinks apart from champagne being free. Wow. I know, I know, it's amazing. I was taken there by a painter and found a salon stuffed with antiques and eccentric bric-a-brac and of course there was Martin dispensing drinks surrounded by artists and musicians.
0: So it won't come as any surprise that the artistic antique collecting side of Martin Miller has lived on because first Martin Miller Gin is supporting us in our own very artistic endeavours in this podcast and it's also now the official partner of the online affordable art fair which is now on and runs till the 3rd of May. I'd love to talk about Gin all morning but it's making <laughs> me, too. me thirsty so let's get on with the podcast by turning to one of the most multi-talented artists of our times. I'm talking of course about the famous artist Master Potter and writer Eben De Waal. Many of you will have seen his beautiful porcelain creations or read his multi-award winning book The Hair with the Amber Eyes which took the world by storm when it was published in 2010. God it was as long ago as that. Well now he's back with a new book Letters to Commando about the Musée Nissim de Commando in Paris, and he's here to tell us about it. Good morning, Edmund. Good morning, Ed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good morning, Edmund. And there's so much to talk about today. Uh, For a start, the book itself is a beautiful, small hardback full of fascinating and evocative photographs. And you've used a really interesting device to tell the story that we'll get onto in a minute. But start by telling readers about the museum itself, which is really the premise for the whole story.
2: So, Charlotte, you have to imagine walking down a really, really beautiful Parisian street of sort of golden houses. And you come to these huge gates and you go, ring the bell, you go into this extraordinary courtyard. Uh, And there is a kind of Belle Époque version of the Petit Trianon. It's it's a perfect small palace, a perfect recreation of an 18th century hotel. It's everything is French furniture, uh, tapestries, carpets, pictures... Savra, of course, <laughs> bronzes, <laughs> um, but it's 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 a fantasy. It's an extraordinary fantasy of a of a Jewish Parisian comte, uh in in nineteen ten.
1: When did you first come across it?
2: I've been on the track of, of Jewish families in Paris, my own family, for a very, very long time. And so 20 years ago, when I started working on, on, on trying to work out basically who I was, I, I used to walk up and down the Rue de Monceau, which is where my family Prison family started out uh, in, in Europe, and I used to pass it, so I used to go in. It's sort of haunted me because it's 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 because of the story, because of the family connections, uh, uh, and it's it's meaning, it's sort of its resonance has just sort of grown and grown and grown on me.
0: We're going to talk about your book in a minute and the whole story of of the amazing family, but just briefly, I know that um you know it's described as a hidden gem, this wonderful museum, but you're going to put it on the map because you've got an exhibition starting there at the end of the year, haven't you? Yes.
2: So about five years ago, I was invited to to actually to make an exhibition for this space. And and, and famously, it's a space that's untouched since 1936. It's also a space that's never had any contemporary art in it. So I've been working and, and anxiously thinking about that. And it's finally opening, this exhibition, after... 18 months of delay in October this autumn, October the 7th. So I've been working on that whole exhibition, but at the same time, this strange thing, this book sort of emerged out of nowhere.
1: Well, I was such a fan of um, Hair with the Amber Eyes. And I'm probably going to pronounce this all wrong, but you traced your Ifrusi family roots via collection of netuski. I, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. Um,
2: <laughs> yes. How do you pronounce it? It's, it's Net You kind of Net, swallow, swallow, the, swallow
0: oh, all the syllables. I, I, I would say I used to say netsuke. So this is very useful for those of us who like to opine about Edmund de Wall. Uh,
1: get it in from me,
2: Ed. Get it from me.
1: Yes. Anyway, Nettski are miniature sculptures originating, originating in. 17th century Japan, and your hair with the amber eyes, you know, you travelled all over the world from a Odessa in Vienna to Tokyo and sort of tracing your family roots through this extraordinary collection. Now, you've done something just as clever and original with this new book by using the museum and the objects in it as a starting point to conjure up a sense of the count and then write him letters. It's so unusual. Well, it's kind of a mistake. I mean, that's the great <laughs> thing, which is that it I was... You know,
2: I was completely locked down, like we all were, and I, I was here for the first time alone in my studio for twenty years. I mean, I've got a wonderful team of people, but there's normally, I'm normally on planes and you know working away, and there's people and stuff and journalists, for God's sake. Um, and I found myself walking around my studio, uh, talking to this particular man, Moïse de Camondo, and I started to write him. Letters and the great thing about a letter is that it can it can be anything. It can be amused or or, or cross or inquisitive or it can be one line. It can be long, but you you have this extraordinary sense palpable sense of someone who you want to talk to you want to tell him things you want to ask him questions you want to share stuff you want to walk alongside them bit, bits of their life and 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 you know he doesn't write back <laughs> you know <laughs> you know it's me trying to talk deeply into history to him knowing that all I've got is his history, his family history, my family history, and this extraordinary place. So the place becomes part of this whole—I don't know—this whole problem <laughs> that, that that's at the heart of the heart of heart of this this book.
0: So basically, you were going slowly nuts and yes, started I... <laughs> talking to yourself. <laughs> yes, exactly. but it is a—you do succeed wonderfully in, in evoking the atmosphere and the time, and I think. Uh, this may sound a bit vulgar actually for me to say it, but what struck me was the sort of bottomless wealth. I mean, they knocked down their house, they rebuilt it, they filled it with the most extraordinary objects a, a museum grade collection. I mean, it yes. was amazing, yes. wasn't it? I mean, yes. this was and this was the sort of the elite of France, and they're sort of your relatives. They they live next door to the Afrucius, don't they? Who are your relatives?
2: So, what you've got, they are. You know, they marry, so they're cousins. They're my grandmother's cousins, so they all live together in these sort of streets. So you've got families from all over, all over the Levant, from Odessa, in my case, um, and they're all coming to Paris, uh, and they they're becoming the perfect French Parisian citizens. So what do you do? You know, you've come from Constantinople or or, or, or Damascus. You build yourself an extraordinary house, or you or you buy an eighteenth-century. Chateau outside, France, outside Paris, and you do it up, and then you you make these, as you say, museum grade collections. You you become French. It, it it's that it's the it's that kind of gritty thing about assimilation that you want to become more French than the French, more Parisian than the Parisians. And and you look to the eighteenth century. You look to the eighteenth century because that civilized, tolerant society when Jews were allowed to become citizens of France, and France becomes the the great symbolic. Refuge of 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 for, for for Jews. That's why you're there,
0: and this is why this is such a tragedy. Because Commando bequeaths his collection to France. That's why it's a museum. But then, of course, the French abandon him and his fa- abandon the family rather to the Nazis, and their fate in concentration camps later on. It's
2: very hard. It's a very hard thing to write about. It's a very hard thing to contemplate because. He gives, he makes his house as a memorial for his his only son who, who who dies during the First World War for France. He he creates this collection. I I say really for his son to walk back into it's a sort of of mourning. But he he gives it to France because he's grateful to France. <laughs> you know he's, he's he's grateful to France, and he dies in 1935. It's given in 36, uh, and then. His daughter, Beatrice, and her husband, Leon, who's my grandmother's cousin, and their two young children, 18 and 21, are deported. They're deported, deported to Auschwitz. So how does all this add up? You know, how does this gratitude, this assimilation, this, you know, work? How, it, it's it's so unresolved.
1: I mean, I find it very, very shocking. because I think that, you know, the contrast between all that incredible wealth and then suddenly the horrific bare reality of them all being... Carted off to Auschwitz. But I just wonder for you, you know, you're going to be putting on, curating this fantastic exhibition there in, in November. I mean, how do you feel about, f- if you like, France hosting that when they've behaved so abominably, basically?
2: I think my whole life in the last 20 years has been returning to places of trauma, <laughs> Charlotte, and trying to work out what you do. You know, what, what, you know here I am, you know, got hugely lucky man in my white man in my late fifties in South London with a nice studio, you know, why why do this stuff? You know? And the answer is that that you can't you you can't swerve past it. That's why I that's why I went back to Vienna. That's why I that's why I did something at the Kunsthistorischer Museum, you know, which was the bloody hell—it was the museum that, it was the museum that, that that orchestrated the systematic looting of all the Jewish households in, in Vienna. It, it it dispossessed people from their possessions and then helped let those people go off to concentration camps. You know, so why work with the uh, Kunsthistorischer Museum? Because you can. Because you can do something there, which has. Uh, strength and reality, and talks about fracture, talks about making things all right, uh, but about revealing broken histories. Uh, why work with the Musée Camondeau? Because that is an extraordinary place, which is all about memorial. You know, it's all about where memory sits in culture, in, in history. Why not? What, what you then do, of course, is bloody difficult because you don't want you want to make something which is beautiful and compelling
0: well maybe the exhibition is part of the first steps to resolving this
2: i ed i don't know if you can resolve anything you know i i i i think one of the lessons that i had from the hair with amber eyes is that you kind of is that you i thought i'd finished you know I thought I'd done something really cool, which was to write my family history and release my kids from having to worry about all this stuff, make a connection with my dad in old age, you know. And then all the letters start coming, which is of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters from people who say, you know, I've got a story. This is my story. This is what happened to me. Yeah. What do you do with all that stuff? Well, you write letters. <laughs> or in my case, you write letters and you also, you kind of make things out of porcelain, which of course is, you know, obviously a material that is breaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that it can't survive. So, you know, in terms of, sort of the symbolism of, of all that stuff, it's very embedded.
1: Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And the book is brilliant, Edmund. I mean, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about it It really is fabulous book
2: i'm so glad to have two
0: readers (laughs) (laughs) so thank you there will be many more to come thank you so much edmund it's lovely to have you on huge pleasure to be invited thank you so much for having me anyone who's been out and about near the thames in central london recently might have seen how Beautiful. Some of the bridges are looking in all their illuminated glory. What you might not know is that they represent part of the longest public art commission in the world at over three miles. I'm so excited about the Illuminated River, as it's known, that I've already enthused about it in the magazine. The Illuminated River actually began in 2019 when London, Cannon Street Railway, Southwark and Millennium Bridges were lit up. And then on Tuesday night, they were joined by Blackfriars, Waterloo, Westminster, Golden Jubilee, Footbridge and Lambeth. There was going to be a big ceremony, but there were fears that it would draw crowds, so they were unveiled discreetly. Now that stretch of the river is a glorious visual feast guaranteed to cheer Londoners up. It's the work of acclaimed artist and pioneer of LED light sculpture, Leo Villareal which is not a football team, it's his name. (laughs) He came to prominence in 2013 when he illuminated the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge. Luckily for us, we've tracked Leo down to the Marriott Hotel in London, and he's here to tell us all about the illuminated river. Good evening. Good evening.
3: Great to be here with you all.
1: Well, hi, Leah, and thank you very much for joining us. Now, this is a real boost for London, as it's going to be around for 10 years and is expected to attract 90 million visitors a year. But to me, the most exciting thing is that however many times you see the bridges, they're always going to look different, because an algorithm means that the lights are permanently changing. So can you start by describing it to our listeners who might not be able to get to London to see it for
3: themselves? Sure. The exciting part for me is the sequencing of the light. So it's not just a static light that's on, it's dynamic. And the the Thames is such a dynamic place with the movement of the water and traffic and people and uh, there's a lot happening that it it seemed like the light should correspond to be dynamic as well. Um, so that's what we've been working on and and i use a lot of my own custom computer software to create those sequences and they're they're displayed in a random order for a random amount amount of time so they are non-repeating so that people can really look at them and and spend a lot of time and see something different each time they see them so you
0: you won an open competition to do this in collaboration with the british architectural practice lishfurt davidson sandilands and 18 specialist teams how much you first knew about the competition. Was it a big uh, deal? Kind of how much work did you have to put into the submission to actually get over the line and win the win the contest?
3: It was um, in 2016 that we heard about the competition over the summer, and of course, we were thrilled by the idea. You know, at that point, I think it was up to 15 bridges, and you know, I had done one very large bridge in San Francisco, but this was a very unique opportunity to deal with you know many different structures. Um, so it was quite challenging. I flew to London, and I came, and I started. I immediately landed and came down and started walking along the bridges in the middle of the night, and walked and walked and walked to try to learn as much as possible about the site. And I was incredibly intrigued um, about the intimacy of the river and the way people use it and trying to think how, how could we augment that and spent several months working on 3d models and all kinds of things to kind of express our idea and fortunately we were selected
1: well i know there are about um, 50 stakeholders involved and that hannah rothschild who's been a guest on this podcast has been very involved in securing the funding for it all tell us a bit about that because it's been fully privately funded by philanthropists hasn't it
3: yes it has and this is you know truly a gift to the city and a gift to everyone it's really an amazing act of generosity i mean they this project didn't need to happen and no one needed to do this, but they saw, you know, this kind of the bridges, which are so iconic, kind of disappearing into darkness and thought that, you know, something could be done. And it turns out to be incredibly fertile ground to explore. And the, you know, what we've done, I think really changes the way people will perceive the bridges and hopefully reveals more of the beauty, but it does it in a subtle way. And if, if people, when they look at it, they may not even notice that something happened. Something looks different, but I think that would be successful in that it's not an immediate and shocking change, but something that they can't quite put their finger on. But it looks, you know, sort of more elevated and creates a sense of space and and excitement.
0: As a former member of the House of Commons and a current member of the House of Lords, I happen to know that Westminster Bridge is painted green to reflect the green benches of the House of Commons and Lambeth Bridge is painted red to reflect the red benches of the House of Lords. Did you, Leo, take into account these two bridges and their relationship with the houses of parliament
3: absolutely i mean that was one of the primary visual identities of the bridge of of westminster and lambeth so the tones of the illumination stick with the kind of greenish palette for westminster and kind of a a warmer palette for lambeth so you know it's it's it it is not a it's not a a disco light show anything like that it's something very subtle and and people uh, they don't look closely they may not notice that the lights are even moving and changing so hopefully in the in the middle of the frenetic city people will take a moment to kind of stop and and look and and it's it's really kind of a meditative experience and I think that you know after the you know tragedy that we've all been through over the last year you know it really resonates in a in a way that is uh that is special and I hope that will help people feel a sense of uh you know connection and and you know uh, to one another and and, and to and to, and to London
0: Clearly one immediately thinks of Christo and the wrapped uh, Pont Neuf in Paris. And of course, he did the sculpture in the and subtitle. Is there a link between you and Christo and your approach and his? Well,
3: Christo, you know, in New York, he did the gates in Central Park. And that was one of the first kind of, you know, monumental public art projects. And that opened the door for this idea that these, these very large projects could be beneficial for cities and in many ways beyond just an art experience. And so people would come to the cities and tourism and hotels and restaurants, et cetera. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why the Bay Lights in San Francisco was able to proceed and has been successful. And I think that it also helped in, you know, with the illuminated river in explaining the value of the piece beyond, you know, just a, a public artwork that everyone could see.
0: The traditional view of the artist is, you know, one person working alone great creating art but chris obviously worked in a huge team and financed a lot of his projects through the architectural drawings if you like that he did for those projects and the artist today the 21st century artist is like you they're kind of as much a computer software engineer as they are as it were a creative artist you kind of marry the technical and the creative together i just wondered this is a mishmash of a question because obviously everyone's talking about non fungible tokens digital art it's very fashionable at the moment kind of what's your view of what an artist is today in the 21st century.
3: Well, I got my start as a sculptor so in a much more traditional sense and became aware of the art of, you know, James Turrell and Dan Flavin and, yes. and light and space artists. But I also was very interested in in computation and um how to access these these tools and how to use them. So I I had the power of light and the, you know, physicality of it and the you know the the perceptual connection that light brings plus code, which is 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 a very interesting way of sequencing that light. Um, at the end of the day, though, it's all in the service of art and creating, you know, it's really, you have to keep the technology in check and it's very seductive and dazzling, but that's really not what it's about. It's about connecting to the very old ideas and especially with the Thames, you know, it's a place of creativity where, you know, Handel wrote water music for, to be played on barges for the King three, over 300 years ago. And you have Turner and Whistler and Monet and this very long history of creativity. Um, So that's really what we've been trying to connect to, uh, even though we're using very contemporary materials.
1: We are actually recording this just about a little while before you're off to go and turn the lights on. So we wish you enormous good luck with it.
3: Thank you very much. It's really thrilling to see uh, the transformational quality that the artwork has. And I think, you know, I hope that people are, are very excited, as excited as I am about it. And certainly in this time of coming back, coming out of you know, this lockdown, you know, I think it will really celebrate the city and, you know, these points of connection that that bring us all together. So I I couldn't be happier and I'm really honoured to have this opportunity.
0: Regular listeners to this podcast will know that we're very much in the business of supporting artistic and cultural institutions that have been hit badly by the pandemic. And we're keen to alert you to any good schemes to help. Well, we've just come across a brilliant scheme to help three unrelated organizations, but they all need cash. They are Westminster Abbey, no less, the Wallace Collection and Grange Festival.
1: Yes, and the man who's come up with a very good idea is Thomas Del Mar, a passionate expert on armour and militaria who founded the sale room at 35 Blythe Road in 2007, which is now Olympia Auctions. And he's here to tell us how everyone can join in and help these three organisations in their hour of need. Good evening, Thomas. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Thank you for coming on, Thomas. So let's start just by telling our listeners why these three institutions uh, need our support. For example, most people are probably unaware that Westminster Abbey's revenue has been absolutely decimated since COVID forced it to close its doors.
4: Absolutely. Um, as many people know, it was since 1066, it's been the coronation church of this country. At that time it's been since that time it's been described as a royal peculiar, which means unusually it is denied funding from either the state or from the church itself. Consequently, when COVID struck this remarkable building, which has no less than 17 monarchs buried in it, uh, lost watch its income full uh, by 11.8 million pounds. The Wallace Collection uh, had many projects put on hold, obviously, with their doors being shut. Uh, one particular project was their OMEA catalogue, which is the catalogue of uh, Ottoman, uh, Middle Eastern, and Asian arms and armour, which will in turn inform their uh, new layout of the ground floor. And so they're now looking for funding for that. Um, and the Grange Festival, had to put on hold their entire project for the new education facilities uh, they'd hoped to have, and also better facilities, which have been relatively minimal up until now uh, for their visiting artists.
1: Okay, so tell us what you've got planned and how everyone can join in.
4: Well, what we wanted to do at the beginning was to come up with something which could help everybody, including ourselves, um, along the way. We've watched auction consignments fall off. And we wanted to have a mechanism by which we could solicit business for ourselves and also help specific charities. We chose three distinct charities which wouldn't uh, compete with each other and we've reduced our vendors commission which we'll be sharing with each organisation and encouraging the vendors to match our donation. The minimum donation at this point stands at just 5% which with our contribution as well comes obviously 10% representing the same as one auctioneer's increment so we're starting to be selling at £1,000 the next bid being 1100 that difference effectively goes to the relevant charity. Some people have already opted to not only participate, but in fact to give more than that. Uh, notably, some have given all of their proceeds uh, to these charities, so there's been already a very positive response to this.
1: And people can submit paintings and other stuff as well, can't they, that you can sell? Yes. One of my favourite
4: things is a remarkable still life of uh, flowers on a windowsill by Winifred Nicholson, which has been given to benefit the Grange Festival. There's a fantastic uh, late medieval uh, Embryaki casket, probably made in Venice in the late 15th century, with proceeds going to Westminster Abbey. Um, And the Wallace Collection has got a large number of pieces of arms and armour, including a mid-16th century German clothes helmet uh, made for a tournament, uh, which would have been attended by the likes of the Habsburg emperors.
0: So how much do you think you're going to raise? As much how as long possible.
4: This go- how long will this go on for? Well, to be honest, has been a very, very positive reaction, uh, but it has also been a little slow on some fronts. So we've had a very strong uptake for, in, well, in many areas, particularly with the arms and armour and works of art. Um, it came a little bit late for the picture sale, so we will be running this on, in fact, till the end of the year. So I'm anticipating it running for at least six months and hopefully rather longer.
0: It's a very good example of... Um People helping themselves. I mean, we, we did a, an earlier podcast on this, uh, on artists supporting each other. So every artist that sold a, a thousand pounds, they donated part of the proceeds to uh, another artist. And so it, it became a sort of daisy chain. I'm thinking, Charlotte, that we could probably auction you off because you're a venerable antique. <laughs>
1: So, can I just ask, when are the auctions starting and are they different auctions for each charity or how does it work?
4: Well, that's a good question. We decided at the outset that this had to work for all parts. So, our picture sale will be taking place in the first week of May, our works of art sale in the last week um, of the same month, uh, on the 28th of May, and the antique arms and armor sale on the 30th of June. And then the same auctions will follow in that order with pictures in October works of art, uh, European and Asian works of art in November, and the arms and armour in December.
1: I think what's very clever about it is if you really feel passionately about the Wallace collection survival, say, you could give six paintings to go into that auction and you can specify what you want to raise money for can't you
4: absolutely you can yeah. do that and also some people if they are keen to sell something and they want to give just a small amount to charity they can really go for the absolute minimum which is not a huge amount of skin off anybody's nose giving just 10 percent, they're giving their five percent and we are matching that from our commission so effectively giving five percent of your proceeds is it's a small amount as i said at the beginning it's literally half an auctioneer's increment when they're bidding hopefully gets exciting.
0: You know, what is appealing about this is it is a win-win. If you're thinking about selling something, why not sell it and also give a little bit to charity as a result with no effort on your part? Absolutely. And there
4: are also tax givebacks. So if an individual is doing it, there are, depending on their financial situation, funding can be boosted by the normal uh, charity tax giving and also companies participating are eligible for tax givebacks on that as well.
1: Well, I think it's brilliant. Can you just, before you go, um, can you just give our listeners your website so they know where to go and look all this up? Absolutely.
4: There's more information on www.olympiaauctions.com. And there is a dedicated fundraising page there.
1: And obviously we'll put all those details on our website too. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me
0: on. That's all we've got time for this week as we're off to have a delicious gin and tonic now. And we highly recommend you find out more about Martin Miller's Gin by going to their website, which couldn't be easier. Martin Miller's Gin, all one word, martinmiller'sgin.com. You know what our website address is now for our newsletter countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter.
1: Also, go to our website to find our other podcasts, Michael Heyman in conversation with some of the founders and CEOs of our great British brands and our sister podcast, House Guest, essential listening for anyone interested in interior design. This week, Carolynette is talking to the garden designer arabella lennox boyd who famously says i spend most of my time outside in the rain and apparently it's very good for your skin
0: <laughs> that will be an absolute cracker anyway <laughs> next week is going to be our first birthday heart so thank you to all our listeners especially the better than old girls who stayed with us <laughs> and all our new listeners including the one in peru And thanks to Martin Miller's gin. We hope we'll be able to keep podcasting for another year. But for now, see you on our birthday next week.